According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 1. We are wrapping up the last details of chapter 1, getting ready to move into chapter 2. We've got to tie together some final issues here pertaining to conflict. As we see, it says, um, verse 27 through 30, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents." That's in not even one way, alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. All right, so that's where we are. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of His Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. And Father, we give you the praise and the thanksgiving, Father, as this is uh, entirely a testimony to your grace. Father, we haven't earned this. We haven't deserved this. Who are we that we should be invited into your counsel, into your thinking? And yet here we have the mind of Christ, Father. I thank you for the blessing that it is to study to show ourselves approved. I pray that you would reward our study, that you would bless our study, that you would equip us in every good work and word. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as uh, we've been outlining this third and final portion of the chapter, uh, remember we broke this chapter down into three parts. The uh, he who began a good work in you part, which I enjoyed very much. Then the my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel part, which was also a blessing because that helped to remind us that we're not uh, enslaved to our circumstances and our details, that we rather have mastery of the circumstances and details of life. With divine viewpoint, we can uh, celebrate every victory. And then now finally, the third portion, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And this is where we are wrapping up the, the details there from verses 19 through 30. And so we've taken uh, this third section of the chapter, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and we've broken it down into eight points of study. And uh, we're in the midst of the eighth and final point this morning. Opponents, suffering, and conflict. They are not alarms, but they are signs. Okay, (laughs) Opponents, sufferings, and conflict. It's nothing to be alarmed about, just the opposite. We should be excited about it. It's a sign. It's a sign of your salvation. It's a sign of, uh, of their destruction. That if in fact you do have opponents and they are attacking you for walking the Christian walk and you are suffering, celebrate that because it's a part of the destiny we have in Christ. It's what we have been appointed to. And uh, some of these principles we've seen here that for to you it has been granted This is part of our grant. This is part of our bequest. This is a part of our grace provision from God the Father. The verb there is a grace verb that speaks of what God has given us in His grace. And in His grace, He's given for us to get saved. That is, it is in His grace that we believe. It's also in His grace that we suffer. And so don't be alarmed by these things. In no way alarmed by your opponents. And so this is what we detailed under subpoint A in even one single way alarmed. The fact that not one way does this alarm us, that becomes the sign. That becomes the, the indicator, see. It is the indexis, as we looked at the vocabulary there. It is the demonstration, the sign, and the proof. The fact that all this conflict is hitting us, and we're not bothered by it. That's, that's a sign. That's a glorious sign that you have the relaxed mental attitude and the divine viewpoint perspective that means that God's Word is coming alive and is going to save you in this test, in this testing circumstance, in this conflict. 
and, uh, and the flip side of the coin, one side with two sides, that the other side of the, of the same sign is the destruction of the very enemies that are attacking you, the very opponents that are attempting to, to bring you down. And so we expanded upon that with uh, some subpoints, an a, a one and a two. I'm going to skip over that this morning. And then uh, under B, our grace gift, not only to be saved, but also to suffer on behalf of Christ. The fact that we believe, uh, as we see here in verse 29, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him. All right, and that's the easy one to preach. We can get that. We are saved by grace through faith, and that's uh, that's a fundamental declaration of our of our uh, of our confession, right? That we are saved by grace through faith. So it is a grace thing. That it is charizomai is the Greek verb there to believe, and uh, and that is it's grace. It's the grace of God that that uh, allows us to believe, and then secondly, to uh, to suffer. And uh, if you're happy about the first one, you better be happy about the second one as well, all right? Uh, because it's the same charizomai as the same verb, okay? God in His grace freely gives us, God in His grace freely gives us the occasion to believe, the ability to believe, the uh, blessing to believe, and the consequences of believing, right? All of that is, is by God's grace. Same thing with our sufferings. And if we don't want that, then uh, that's, uh, that's an attitude adjustment that we need, all right? It's an attitude adjustment. So God has charizomied for us to pastuo, and God has charizomied for us to uh, pasco, to suffer, okay? Pasco is not just a town in Idaho, in, right? Sorry. Is it, it is in Idaho, isn't it? Pasco, Pasco, Washington, okay. I thought it was in Idaho. Pasco, Washington. All right, never mind. It was a dumb joke anyway. Um, Pasco is the verb to suffer, okay? Jesus pascoed, why why shouldn't we pasco, okay? Pasco is where we get the term passion, the passion of the Christ comes from pasco, okay? And uh, uh, this is where we left off. We actually ran out of time. We only got through half of these verses and and different things there. So I kind of want to pick up on this and then uh, we can take it uh, into 1 Peter, which is the book of sufferings. A dozen uses of Pasco is in, is in uh, 1 Peter. And so if you ever want to study suffering, I recommend 1 Peter. It's the book on suffering and keeping your divine viewpoint perspective with respect to, uh, with respect to that. So uh, Wednesday we got through Matthew and Acts and uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe... Galatians we looked at. Philippians, of course, is our passage this morning. So uh, let's pick up with 1 Thessalonians and uh, get the remainder of our suffering uh, instances here. I think we recognize the idea of suffering. Hopefully we've got a bigger picture on suffering than, uh, than just the experience, all right? When we think about suffering, um, I, maybe it's, I'm just talking for myself here, but uh, to me, it seems like when most people discuss suffering, they're talking about the experience, the hardship, the the unpleasantness of it, the the unjustness of it, uh, the, the fact that we don't like it. Uh, I don't see people talking about suffering in the will of God and what it produces and what it's designed to achieve and how in the fruits of that suffering, being strengthened through that suffering, we're now equipped to minister and to serve, and, and it, it, it tenderizes us, it prepares us. That if, uh, it, same thing with Jesus, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And the fact that he did suffer is what equipped him to be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And, and so as we look at these references here that all pertain to suffering, um, I think it communicates, all of them communicate nuances that the movies can't do, <laughs> okay? You know, Mel Gibson can give you all the special effects in the world and you can watch a, a graphical representation of, of, of uh, you know, a scourging. You know, you can see whips and chains and hooks and, and, and the special effects are, are pretty gruesome, right? And it's unpleasant to watch. And, and so that kind of thing can be portrayed visually on a, in a movie. But what the Bible portrays and what suffering does in building our character and shaping our spiritual values and, and sparking our growth 
The Word of God can communicate that, and the Holy Spirit can communicate that to our human spirit in a, in a way that I hope comes across here this morning. So, in any event, um, most a lot of these Pasco uses, uh, there's 42 of them in the New Testament. We're not looking at all of them, but we are seeing a, a fairly representative sample here. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.14, and uh, it's uh, something that Paul's thankful for. You back up here to verse 13 and you see thankfulness. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Isn't that a glorious thing? You take in the Word of God, and what are you doing? You are benefiting yourself today and tomorrow and all day, every day. It's a, it's a living thing, and you're taking it in, and you're with, a, with humility, you receive the Word implanted, and what's it going to do? You're taking it in, and it's alive. You're taking the living and abiding Word of God, and you're planting it deep within your soul, and it's going to do its work. It's, it's going to do its work, because that's what it does. Thank God for that. See? And uh, sometimes I, I like to use pregnancy on, on uh, illustration for this in the, the sense that I've never been pregnant, but I've seen my wife. And, and uh, you know, when you're pregnant, there is a living being inside of you, okay? And something other than you is inside of you. And it's, it's alive and it kicks and sometimes it sits on your bladder and it, it pokes and it's uncomfortable. And that's what the Word of God does. It's inside of you and it's living and it's active and sometimes it sits on your bladder and it's uncomfortable, right? Or it sits on your conscience. The Word of God will po- poke and prod and, and it does those things by design. And uh, sometimes it leaves us very uncomfortable with things we're doing and things we're thinking and things we're saying. And, uh, and I think that's a, it's a marvelous illustration for what the Word of God can do. All right, so you received it for what it really is, the Word of God, which, is a, which performs its work in you who believe, okay? Not just are saved and have eternal life, but you are operating in the, in the function of faith, that you are presently now faithful. You are presently now walking by faith and not by sight, okay? Understand the experience of, of faith, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings. This is why you need the Word of God in residency. You need doctrine in residency as you're facing these things. You endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. And so the believers in Jerusalem that experienced that from Jewish uh, uh, opponents and adversaries, uh, the Thessalonians likewise were facing that from you know Macedonian countrymen, um, the hostility and, and so forth. And so we have testing that's common to man. We have sufferings that's common to man. I like to uh, expand that a little bit to say you know ministry suffering is common to ministries. Lampstand conflict is common to lampstands. All right, because they they faced it in Jerusalem, uh, they faced it in Thessalonica, we face it in Austin. It's just it's what happens. That's the way it works. So we need the Word of God. Each each one of us needs the Word of God uh, because that's what's going to save us. That's what's going to do its work in uh, you who believe. All right. So uh, yes, yes, it's suffering, but it's not stressing the unpleasant nature of it. It's stressing on the production. It's stressing on how God uses it and uh, the positive application there. Second Thessalonians 1.5. The fact that we have things on display is also useful to remind yourself of when you're finding yourself not liking what you're going through. Just remind yourself that God designed it and it's on display. So uh, uh, get on board His program. How about that? And um, again, it's thankfulness. In a context of a thanksgiving prayer, verse 3 says, we ought always to give thanks to God for your brethren as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. 
And so the flock there in Thessalonica, they become the example. And Paul can point to them uh, when he goes to Corinth and when he goes to Ephesus and when he goes to wherever else he goes. He can say, look at those guys and what they're doing there. Look at their faith. Look at their hope. Look at their love. Look at how they're applying and, and how the Word of God is, is delivering them. Not only that, but all of this, the persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Verse 5, a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. A plain indication of God's righteous judgment. That right there, that's, that's the sign we're studying in Philippians. The fact that it's a sign. It's a sign of salvation for you and destruction for them. Here he doesn't call it a sign, he calls it a plain indication. <laughs> All right? Different vocabulary, but I think essentially it's the same thing. It's a plain indication. It's, it's an indicator. It's, it's something obvious. Any fool can plainly see, right? Anyway, to which you say, I can plainly see that. All right. And so it's a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. And this would agree with uh, the salvation side of things. It's a sign of salvation for you. And also, uh, what is it a sign of? For the it's destruction for the opponents, for the adversaries. And, that, and we, I think we see this parallel here also. Um, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Okay, This is God's sovereign payback program in terms of His righteous judgment. And uh, the only problem is, I say problem, the only, um, the only issue that carnal believers aren't going to like is the fact that this payback doesn't come as fast as carnal believers want it to come. That the, uh, the righteous judgment comes at Armageddon, at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, as it says here, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. See, now there's your destruction. It's the sign of salvation for us and destruction for them. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. I think the second advent is going to be amazing. And we're going to be following him on white horses. And we're just going to sit there in amazement. We're going to sit there marveling. and Because uh, he's going to do all the work. I mean, he's going to do all the combat and all the, the slaying of the adversaries and all of that. He's going to, uh, you, you know, don't, don't be afraid that, you know, you have to, a lot of that's going to depend on you because, you know, my horsemanship is not very impressive. Um, that's all right, though. Because all i got to do is sit on that horse and stare in wonder and amazement and adoration and love because our Savior is going to be marveled at among all who have believed. So, uh, suffering, uh, not the hardship, not the experience, not the displeasure, not the... Uh, what's emphasized here is the production, the glory, God's purpose, what it produces, what it achieves. And if we keep our eyes focused on that, I think we will uh, do real well. Okay? 2 Timothy 1.12. Let's get the last of these Pasco passages. You're right. Kennewick, Pasco, those are the Tri-Cities. What was I thinking? Okay. Your mom lives there. All right. Things that roll around in my head while I'm thinking. Second Timothy 1.12. Pasco. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him against until that day. So it's for this reason I also suffer. There's a reason for my suffering. God does nothing for no reason. We should rejoice in that. There is a reason. And uh, I think Satan uses the, the, the idea that there's no reason or that God's reasons are wrong. Uh, God, Satan likes to use that to get us distracted, to get us um, to where we get our eyes off the Lord. 
He, started, he likes to lie and say, oh, there's, you shouldn't be going through this. There's no reason that you should have to do this. And, uh, and uh, no, there is a reason. And uh, we should accept that. We also have the appointing terminology here in verse 11, uh, whereby I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. So it's connected to our appointments. That's what we're dealing with. Philippians 1 is our, our, our appointments. It has been appointed. It has been granted for you, not only to believe for His sake, but also to suffer for His sake. And uh, we see it there also. So how many people do you know? They're happy to be saved. Yeah, they're very delighted that God graciously granted for them to believe. They don't want to accept the second part of that, that God graciously granted for them to also suffer for Christ's sake. Okay? We have to accept both. Then Hebrews. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 13. Hebrews has a lot to say about suffering. Hebrews 2.18, since He Himself, this is talking about Jesus, our Savior, illustrated this a little bit ago, and now here we see it. Um, Verse 16, God the Father does not take hold of angels. He's not holding an angel in His right hand. He's holding Jesus Christ in His right hand. He gives help or He holds the the seed of Abraham reference to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. It was necessary for Christ to come and identify with us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Without his first advent, without the humility of coming in the flesh, he would not have the capacity to be the merciful and faithful high priest that he is today. Since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So understand this, that when we are suffering, what comes with that? A temptation, right? With the suffering comes a temptation. In other words, it's a venue. It's a venue for us to decide, are we going to stay faithful or are we going to deny are we, going to, uh, can, are we only going to accept good from God and not adversity? Are we going to be like Job's wife? Or are we going to be like Job? Because here comes the suffering, and it's a temptation. And we, we can have victory in that temptation, and we can continue to walk by faith and, and leave the rest in God's hands. Or, obviously, we can fall, we can stumble in uh, the temptation. Thankfully, Christ did not. He was tempted in that which he suffered, and so he is able to come to the aid of those who are so tempted. Chapter 5 and verse 8. In the day, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Suffering is instructive. You learn things that you wouldn't learn otherwise or in a certain way. You can learn things academically, you can learn chapter and verse, you can take down notes and put them in a notebook, but guess what? You learn in a whole new dimension when it's through suffering. (laughs) You learn to a whole different spectrum of of intensity when you're going through the suffering and then the Word of God comes alive and saves you, delivers you, and it's a tremendous learning experience. So he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect... Notice what else the suffering did. It perfected him. Now, he was already sinless perfect, but how do you perfect perfection, okay? This is kind of a fun vocabulary study too. But anyway, he learned, having been made perfect, what did that? The suffering. The suffering is what brought about the perfecting of Jesus, the um, source of our salvation. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And uh, without, without the cross, he can't not only uh, achieve the Father's purpose in removing the sin, but become the provider for the salvation. All right, so that's chapter 5, chapter 9, and verse 26. So stay tuned for more on this, because uh, clearly we're in a Hebrew study next hour, and all of this is still in front of us as far as the book of Hebrews is concerned recognizing what he did he did once and for all and he didn't do it as a ritual he did it as a reality and uh, all of the 
the first tabernacle and first temple. They were simply earthly replicas and the, the ritual was designed to teach a reality. Jesus Christ fulfilled the reality. And so uh, there's copies of the things that are in heaven, but Jesus cleansed the heavenly. And uh, as we see, verse 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. Didn't have to. There was no purpose for him to do that. He hung on the cross. The veil was rent in two. It exposed an empty room inside that veil. They didn't have an Ark of the Covenant, uh, not since the Babylonian captivity. They came back without an Ark, all right? And the veil was rent in two, and he didn't go in there. There's no point. He went into the heavenly reality. Um, He went into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. And uh, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Every year, here we go again, day of atonement. Every year, here we go again, okay? And year after year, high priest after high priest, when a high priest dies, the new high priest gets his first turn to do it. And year after year after year is a reminder of sin. As it says, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so it's a once and for all suffering. It's a once and for all sacrifice. It does not need to be repeated again and again and again. It needs to happen, but it only needs to happen once. And then it accomplishes the eternal purpose. So that's why when he comes back a second time, there's no reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Thank God for that. He dealt with sin in his first advent. So he can come back in second advent without reference to sin. And uh, the blessings there. Finally then, chapter 13 and verse 12. The last of the Hebrews' Paschal usages. And uh, bringing an application for us as well. Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us, and this brings in Old Testament doctrine too, why do they sacrifice the animal where they do and where do they drain the blood and how do they lead the scapegoat away and uh, other, other things. Anyway, Jesus suffered outside the gate. So let us also go out to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So his, his example fulfilled all the Old Testament types, fulfilled all the, the typology and the shadows and the animal rituals and all of that, fulfilled that and set the example for us. We too have to be willing to take up our cross and follow Him. We too have to be willing to suffer outside the gate. We have to be willing to identify with the shame and uh, to suffer even as He suffered. All right. And then 12 times in First Peter. Now let's look at First Peter the book of suffering. And uh, I failed to put a list together, so let's put a list together. First Peter. Well, I'll show you the easiest way to do this. Let's go to our verse this morning. If you're not familiar with how to do this, we are in uh, Philippians 1 and verse uh, 28. Or verse 29, so there's suffer. Right-click on Suffer, find Pasco, your uh, lemma, and then search this resource. Okay, and there's your New Testament verse list. And uh, we can limit it only to Peter if we'd like. First Peter. There we go. And there's our verse list. And it's too small, I understand that, for the Back row commandos, I got you. How about that? Bigger? How about that? All right. <laughs> yeah, it's a fuzzy Bible church. No, it's not. Um, fuzzy Bible search. All right, so 12 results in 11 verses, starting with First Peter 2.9. And by the way, this is a, a handy view. Sometimes it's called a concordance view or a... a a context view aligned in context um, and it's good it gives you a snippet you can read you know a partial sentence you can read more if you make it smaller 
You can read less if you make it bigger. But either way, as you're reading the snippet, it allows you to, it jogs your memory if you're familiar with the passage anyway from other studies, and then it helps you to remember. So uh, you see a whole uh, batch of them there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, verse 23. So that kind of seems to be a concentrated paragraph right there. And uh, so we can turn there and look at that, or you can click it and it'll open up like that. And you'll see, yeah, look at that, yellow, 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 yellow. There's your highlights, okay? So First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, I guess the paragraph begins with verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. All right, I've had great bosses in different jobs over the years, and I've had terrible bosses in jobs over the years. And some of you are praying uh, similar prayers right now with respect to that. For this finds favor. See, when, uh, when you are enduring in the undeserved suffering and you're just walking by grace and you're submitting to the unjust uh, supervision, well, there you go. Finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God... A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So there you go. And it's a circumstance and and you bear it up and you're doing so for the right reasons, for the sake of conscience toward God. And so that's that's a grace provision right there. For what credit is there? What grace is there? If um, what, uh, yeah, credit. I think uh, credit's a good translation. There's a I was looking at that as a word study the other day for crediting things. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So I mean, yeah, the law of sowing and reaping, if you if you mess up and you reap what you sow and you're getting the just desserts of dumb choices, uh, okay, you know, there you go. But if you are suffering unjustly, that's a whole different animal because that means you are imitating Christ and portraying Christ. Christ is the ultimate, of course, for suffering unjustly and, and uh, accepting uh, what He didn't earn, didn't deserve. He shouldn't have been on that cross. You and me, we should have been on that cross. All right? And so here we get some undeserved suffering, and it's far less than Jesus faced, far less than Job faced, far less than you know a lot of things. We blow them out of proportion a lot because it's subjective for us and we think it's the worst thing ever. But the fact is, when we suffer unjustly, we get to be, it's a privilege to be an imitator of Christ and to display that. And God calls it a grace thing. This finds favor with God. So that's a blessing. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Again, part of his calling, part of his appointing. It's been appointed for you to not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. And here we see it. You've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Uh, he committed no sin or was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. I think um, Job finally opened his mouth and started uttering some things. He reached a point where he had to start uttering some things. And he confessed. He said, you know, the, the words of a man in despair belong to the wind. And, uh, and we get that. We get that, that we say things we probably wouldn't say if we weren't suffering like this and other under, under other circumstances. That's, that's human. That's normal. But Jesus didn't even utter anything. He kept his mouth clamped shut. And that's, uh, that's a blessing there too. All right? Uh, so that's the, the concentration in chapter 2. There's another concentration in chapter 3, verses 14, 17, and 18. And uh, yeah, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intim- intimidation and do not be troubled. And so in the suffering can come happiness, can come makarios. All right? Not that it's, it's, it's not... Uh, might appear to be masochistic, I guess, I don't know. But in a spiritual sense, you can be amazed because you're not in one way alarmed. And in kind of a funny little ironic way, you have a, a certain joy, an internal peace, uh, an inner happiness that says, you know, 
This suffering is not fun, but it is a a thrill to me to think that I'm going to have an eternal reward for this waiting for me at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, think about that. And so deep down in your soul, there's a little happiness that thinks, all right, this is, this is kind of fun (laughs) in a unpleasant kind of human experience. So you are Makarios, you are blessed. And uh, that's what Jesus said, right? Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and and all these things. That's the Makarios uh, blessing. Uh, Verse 17, it is better if God should will it so that you you should suffer. This is a similar message that was uh, presented back in chapter 2. You know, suffering as a wrongdoer is one thing, but undeserved suffering is something else. Big difference between divine discipline and undeserved suffering. And uh, so, you know, Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You know, God will use that. God will use that. And our culture is seeing this right now. It was just last year that Vice President Pence was mocked and ridiculed. And I mean, here he is because he won't have dinner without his wife present. He won't have, he won't have a meal with a woman not his wife if his wife is not present and he's not going to be putting himself in a position there and consuming alcohol and other things. And he has boundaries in place as a spiritual priority, as a biblical, uh, based on biblical principles for his marriage. And, uh, and, he, and then he gets slandered for it and as some kind of a Puritan kook and some kind of a weirdo and some kind of a, and you know they've, they've got agents and minions that are digging for dirt and trying to find anything they can on, on the Pence family, right? And now what do we have in the news? We got example after example after example of all kinds of sexual ugliness, okay? And of course Pence has no part of any of that because he's got the boundaries in place and the biblical priorities and, and there you have it. So anyway, um, yeah, they're going to be put to shame. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for what is doing wrong. So you get some ridicule, you get some mocking, you get some kind of suffering for being a, a, a righteous saint. Great. That's better than the alternative. Christ died for sins once for all. And the term died there is actually suffering. Pasco. Once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So that's our chapter three concentration. Chapter four concentration. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Look at that again, suffering with a purpose. There's a purpose, there's a reason. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Should you and I have the same purpose that Christ had for his suffering? Of course. He learned we should learn. He was suited and prepared. We should be suited and prepared. We should accept and embrace every suffering the Father calls us to do. Because to the degree that we suffer, so also we shall reign. We are being equipped and prepared. He was equipped and prepared to be the uh, apostle and high priest of our confession to be a merciful and faithful high priest. What are we being equipped and prepared for? The role that the bride is going to have with Christ in the millennium and beyond. In the millennium and in the fullness of times, in the new heavens and on the new earth. See, the, the, the groom is ready. The bride is still getting ready, right? And we get that. That's normal. The groom is always dressed first. Sometimes it's just fun to preach these things. All right. The bride takes longer. Okay. We get that. That's normal. But now eschatologically speaking, of course, it's biblical because the groom was prepared in his first advent. He ascended to the father's right hand. He was seated. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now it's the bride that's being suited. The bride is being prepared. And most of the bride is there. There's only the the current living generation that remains. Most of the bride is already suited, perfect, ready to go. It's only us who remain. Okay, And as soon as that trumpet sounds, then the, the entire bride together. What a glory. Looking forward to that. So, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who suffered from the flesh is see, in the flesh has ceased from sin. We should have that same attitude, um, living uh, in the spirit, not in the flesh. 
for the time already passed is sufficient. <laughs> Whatever your past is, leave it in the past. Okay, that's, that's enough of that. And uh, the things there. All right, so those are the first Peter uses. Uh, nope, a few more. Verse 15, verse 19. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Seems like Peter keeps saying the same thing again and again and again, right? When you're suffering, you don't want it to be divine discipline. You want it to be undeserved suffering. And uh, verse 19, those who suffer according to the will of God. Now, wait a minute. I've had people look me in the eye and tell me God would never have you suffer in His will. There's prosperity pastors that would tell you that suffering is never the will of God. They, they must not have 1 Peter 4.19 in their Bibles. Because this says, those who suffer according to the will of God. Well, there you go. There is such a thing as suffering in the will of God. They shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is what Jesus did. He entrusted his soul to his faithful creator. He cried out with loud cryings to the one able to save him from death. All right, so that's uh, chapter 4. And then the last of the first Peter sufferings comes in uh, chapter 5 and verse 10. And I like 1 Peter 5. It's a, I go here a lot when it comes to shepherding, when it comes to um, under shepherds and flocks, different aspects there. That's why we need humility. That's why we cast our cares on Him. That's why we're of sober spirit. Here's the devil prowling about like a roaring lion. I mean, we go to this chapter for a lot of, a lot of truth. But notice, uh, resist Him. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and it's not going to be you because your armor's on and you're humble and you're going to cast all your anxiety on him. He cares for you. Uh, you're going to be resisting him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering, the same experiences of suffering, it's not highlighted yellow because it's not the verb, it's the noun, but the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We have shared, mutual shared experiences in our sufferings. And that's by design. That's so that we can weep with one another. That's so we can rejoice with one another. That's so we can love one another and bear one another's burdens. That we have this shared experience of sufferings. And that's going to come up in our next point. So I'm getting ahead of myself. But the same conflict it's our blessing to have fellowship. It's called the fellowship of His sufferings. <laughs> you know, when we have church fellowships, we want the fellowship of cheesecake. <laughs> we want the fellowship of, you know, whatever. Burgers and, and you know, that's, but the Bible calls it the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed unto His death. And it goes on to say, after you have suffered for a little while, I know it seems like forever. I know it seems like this test has lasted for, you know, months and years and whatever. Abraham and Sarah waited 90 years to have a baby. Okay, Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The suffering isn't too long. The suffering is what's perfecting you. Okay, anyway, there's the verses there. It has been granted. It has been grace given. God charizomide you and me to pastuo and to pasco. And if I'm thankful for the first, I better be thankful for the second. And I want to embrace it and I want it to accomplish what it's designed to accomplish so that uh, Jesus gets all the glory. Now finally, Subpoint C. The same conflict. Let's look at the verse. The same conflict of suffering. It is the testing that's common to man. The same conflict of suffering. You saw it in me, now you hear it to be in me, and it's going to be in you. Again, Philippians 1, now verse 30. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake experiencing 
the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Experiencing the same conflict, it means that our testing is common to man. We watch others go through it. We ourselves also experience it. We also experience it. Now we can think about it as separate things, but we should start to think of it as one and the same. If we see it happening, we know that, okay, we'll have a turn later. We should learn from it now. But I think it's bigger than that. We see it happening. Do we also experience it while we're watching it happening? While we hear of it happening? When we get a report, for example, of Fassel and Kerry in Pakistan and the testing they're currently going under? Okay? There was another alert that went out. In fact, Gene Cunningham sent an email yesterday asking we better ramp up our prayers for Fassel and Carrie. Okay? We hear these reports. We, yes, we pray. Are we sharers in that or not? Do we experience it or not? I think we do. I think we should. Prayerfully and spiritually and, and, and uh, at the time they're going through it. And then also after. We'll, we'll have a turn. So experiencing the same conflict which you saw. Which you saw. And that's uh, pointing to a past event. I think it's proof that uh, Paul has only been to Philippi once. And uh, Philippians is being written prior to his second and his third and his fourth visits in Philippi. That uh, they saw on the occasion of Acts 16 in the night with a Philippian jailer. But now they hear uh, that Paul has his imprisonment that's happening here in uh, Ephesus or wherever. That he's got this imprisonment that's happening. Paul's only been there once. You saw it, aorist tense, and now hear, present tense. You are now hearing it to be in me. But they are experiencing it. And they are experiencing the same agony, the same conflict. So testing that's common to man. And you probably know these verses, Philippians 1, uh, well, that's our verse this morning, Philippians 1.30. But how about 1 Corinthians 10.13? You got that on a refrigerator somewhere or a bathroom mirror? All testing is common to man. God is faithful, Right? He will not test you beyond that which you're able to bear, but with the testing He will provide the way of escape. With the testing He provides the, I like to call it the victorious conclusion. The victorious conclusion. The end of the test. The designed end. Not the preemptive end. Not the chicken out and bail end. Not the, see I think there's so much escapism in our culture that the the way of escape, I, I don't like that as a translation any longer only because we have a culture that has surrendered to escapism of every kind. They're going to use drugs and alcohol and sex and and entertainment, whatever. I mean, there's no shortage of escapism out there. And so somebody in modern American culture reads Way of Escape and they think, yeah, I can bail on this test. That God is faithful and gives me a parachute to, to bail. No. He gives you the ekbasis, which is the exit, the victorious conclusion when the testing accomplishes its purpose. When the suffering accomplishes its purpose. Anyway, it's common to man. It is testing that's common to man. It's in the realm of humanity. Welcome to being human. All right, Humanity comes with this stuff. Guess what though? Our resources are not human. Does your company have a human resources department? A lot of companies do, right? Um, if you have a big enough company, okay? Uh, self-employed, I guess you are the human resources department. But um, I have yet to find a company, the biggest one you've ever imagined or worked for, and they've got this human resource department. Do they have a divine resource department? Because what does it say? Our our resources are divine. Okay? I should probably flip there. I haven't even turned my pages there. 1 Corinthians 10.13. See, the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. It's just, it's amazing that we've got these divine resources. All right. So yes, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is human, common to man. And so uh, when he tells the Philippians that they're enduring the same conflict of suffering, 
That's uh, what we're talking about here. It's not a strange thing. You're not unique. It's common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's the thing. And He gives you ability. He gives you His resources. So what are you able to endure when God's on your side? But with the temptation, we'll provide the way of escape. I hate that. The victorious conclusion also. So that you don't bail and run away from all your problems. It says so that you will be able to endure it. He's going to see you through everything. You're going to get to the other side and look back and give Him the praise and the glory. And that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. First Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. You were just there a little bit ago. Uh, don't think it's a strange thing. It's not weird. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Ooh, what is this weird thing? I've got problems. Oh, what is this weird thing? I've got suffering. I was told I'm not going to have any more suffering. Just get saved and everything is great. My marriage will be perfect. I have no more, um, no more debt, no more bills. I mean, perfect health. Just get Jesus and life is great. If someone evangelized you like that, they, uh, they gave you a, a bill of goods, and I apologize. That was a crummy evangelist, and uh, they weren't trained here, I'll tell you that. Okay, It's not a strange thing, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. It's not a weird thing, it's normal, okay? Husbands and wives, it's not a strange thing. It's normal. Okay? You're not the first marriage in the history of marriage to, uh, to, to, to go through something like this. It's, it's normal. Okay? All marital testing is common to marriage. Ministry testing is common to ministry. Human testing is common to humans. Local lampstand testing is common to lampstands. And so uh, we can appreciate that. All right? The same conflict. Conflict here is agony. The Greek is agon, A-G-O-N, agon. And um, it speaks of, uh, it's just an athletic term. It's a military term. It's, uh, it's got different context depending, but it speaks of the struggle. That's why uh, I titled that division of, of systematic theology, I titled it agonology. Uh, it's, it's the struggle, the believer's struggle. We all have it. And um, you know, you can think of the agony of defeat, right? The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat in those old ABC commercials on the wide world of sports. And, uh, you know, you ever feel that way? <laughs> that guy going down the ski jump and he wipes out and, man, okay? Yeah. I think it's a metaphor and, and we all get that because who hasn't in their Christian walk? Well, uh, the verb is, uh, the noun, I'm sorry, is agon, number 73. The verb is agonizomai, uh, number 75, okay? And uh, if you're studying your deponent verbs, you understand um, it's active in sense. Agonizomai, right? Agonize, agonize, oh my. That's what it is, agonizomai. Um, and so that becomes the vocabulary basis. These two terms become the vocabulary basis for the studies that we've done in the past on agonology. What does it mean for the believer's struggle, the believer's suffering, okay, or struggle? That goes with a walk. It goes exactly with a walk. And so John 18, 36, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, Philippians 1, 30, Colossians, uh, man, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, all in Colossians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, 1 Timothy 6, 12, 2 Timothy 4, 7, Hebrews 12, 1. All right. Think we can get through that in seven minutes? Maybe. But we understand this, all right? And if we don't, you've already had them anyway because uh, these are all the verses that I, I just ripped off from the, the notebook, the Basic Doctrinal Studies Notebook, the Doctrine of Agonology, okay? It's not plagiarism, I'm stealing from myself. <laughs> but this is what we talk about. John eighteen thirty six. We know what the agony is. You know, it doesn't take long either. I mean, 
in different ways. A babe starts to struggle almost from day one. Certainly in adolescence comes more struggle. You've got to learn how to identify it and deal with it and grow through it. It's not a strange thing. It's a normal thing. All right, John 18, 36. And it's kind of fun. So back-to-back word studies, back-to-back suffering for 20 minutes and then agony for seven minutes. Um, yeah, welcome to the ministry. Welcome to Christianity. This is what it is. You know? And there's probably a good reason why doctrinal churches tend to be small. It's not the, it's not the happy, feel-good kind of thing that you're going to get in, in another type of ministry. Anyway. The, um, when you think about the struggle, and here's Pilate quizzing Jesus. Um, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be, and here's our verb, agonizomai. My servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This is so important. And I think this, this solves a lot of issues, okay? Because I think there are misguided believers that are fighting over all the wrong things. And they're fighting for all the wrong reasons. And they ought to pay attention to what Jesus says here with respect to his kingdom, not of this world. Presently, we are, we are ambassadors for his kingdom, and it's not of this world, and it's not here yet. And uh, a lot of believers that are very militant in what they're doing to try to transform this world, that's not what we're called to do. All right? And, uh, you know, he said they would be fighting. But this is a counterfactual. This is one of those if and it's not true. Now, if it was true, then this is what they would be doing. But it's not true. So this is what they're not doing, right? They're not doing this. It's a counterfactual. And so because his kingdom is not of this world, my servants, it says, would be fighting, but they're not. They're not. And yeah, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't. All right? He went to the cross. That says, that's his victory. Anyway, so right there, the first verse right off the bat, before we look at any of these Pauline verses with respect to agonology, uh, recognize I think there's a misguided struggle. There's a misguided fight, a misguided warfare. And, and uh, if we're commanded to fight the good fight, uh, I think what's included is a command to not fight the bad fight, to not fight the wrong fight, to not fight uh, something that we've not been called to fight. But fight the good fight, as Paul tells Timothy. Again and again and again. So I've already given away, you know what 1 Timothy 6.12 and 2 Timothy 4.7 are going to say before we even get there. All right? Um, anyway, there's, there's more here um, with Pilate and throwing up his hands and what is truth and the different aspects there. I, I sometimes wonder if this was the... I mean, it seems like today. It seems like our culture today that has no absolutes, that has no standard of truth, that thinks there's no such thing as truth. And they're throwing up their hands like a pilot's like a, I don't know, a postmodern deconstructionist or something. Certainly a man ahead of his time. But I don't think this stuff's new anyway. I think this, this, these philosophies are just reheated leftovers. Stuff that goes back to old, old times. 1 Corinthians 9.25, I've got to wrap this up. You're going to get a homiletics class tonight. It's going to say, don't rush at the end. <laughs> Sorry. 1 Corinthians 9.25. Verse 24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? There is a first place ribbon. There is a first place wreath. Uh, not everybody gets the participation trophy. Uh, run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
They then do it for, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So here's agonology. Not always in a military conflict. It's not always in fighting. It can be in an athletic competition, such as here. All right, but it does deal with something that's painful, something that hurts, something that takes effort, and must be according to the rules. You don't cheat and win. You don't cheat in the agonology doctrine and win. You have to agonize according to God's design, which is the plan of God for the church age. And uh, there it is. All right. We'll do the rest of these Wednesday, Lord willing, and rapture pending, and then we'll be ready and prepared to get our first peak at chapter two. And that'll be fun, as uh, I've been wanting to get into the kenosis since we first got to Philippians. <laughs> All right. And that's what we have coming up in chapter two. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for uh, opening our eyes to suffering and to struggle. And uh, sometimes they go hand in hand. Sometimes they're separate issues. But it is, uh, it's what we're called to, Father. We're called to the suffering and we're also called to the struggle. And uh, we want to achieve your purpose in both. So, Father, uh, make these scriptures plain to each one of us. We might, uh, each one of us, be able to make individual applications in our personal lives. But then collectively, Father, as a flock, Austin Bible Church needs to make the application in our corporate life, Father, here as a body, as a lampstand. So uh, make it very clear to, uh, to each one of us and to all of us, Father, what you would have for us to do. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty, fellowship time between now and the top of the